0: And we're back. Happy Sunday and welcome to episode 57, Minds 57, of the Confessions of a Not So Dangerous Mind podcast. I'd like to thank all of you for spending some of your late Sunday afternoon with me into Sunday evening perhaps, depending on where you are. If you're checking out episode 57 on the YouTube channel, and haven't done so already, and are enjoying the content, don't forget to click like, subscribe, and turn on the notifications if you're catching episode 57 on one of the audio platforms like spotify itunes or the others same general rule applies If you haven't done so already and are enjoying the content click like subscribe turn on those notifications so one major film franchise and or series that i don't believe has even been broached as a side topic in any of the podcasts to this point James Bond, 007. And it's strange that I've waited until now to even speak of it in any capacity, because I mean, I started watching James Bond films when I was a little kid, even in the days where you could only watch whatever was on TV at that particular time, it always seemed like there was a James Bond film, especially on weekends. Because even going back four decades, TBS, they owned uh, I believe most of the library up to that point, and between HBO and Cinemax and TBS, and even sometimes broadcast television, uh, there was always a James Bond film. Whether it was an early Connery or a later Connery or a Roger Moore, um, there was always a James Bond film on. But HBO in particular, in the early uh, to mid-1980s, they were always showing James Bond films. So. I think the first Bond movie that I saw was For Your Eyes Only, which was uh, one of the Roger Moore Bonds. And as a kind of scholar, as somebody who has been a big fan of many of the James Bond films and series, and the actors who played James Bond, I don't like Roger Moore. I love Roger Moore, I feel like he was the weakest of all of the Bond actors, and I guess it's unfortunate or ironic that he made the most. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that Roger Moore made seven Bond films, which is the most. Connery made six, Daniel Craig five, Pierce Brosnan four, Timothy Dalton two, and um, George Lazenby one. But each actor brought something different to the table. Um the Roger Moore films were more lighthearted even though sometimes the stakes were just as high end of the world as we know it and I feel fine kind of stakes but Moore had a he had a sardonic wit Connery had the wit but it was more of a kind of brutal straightforward deadpan wit whereas Moore almost seemed to be in on the joke and I remember watching Um, Live and Let Die, which is almost more famous for the Paul McCartney, Live and Let Die, don't like the song. I love McCartney too, not a fan of that song. And that movie has one of the longest, most pointless chase scenes in the history of cinema. And the way that I would describe it is for those familiar with the film, you're going to probably laugh and agree with me. And for those not, you're going to wonder what I'm talking about. There is a version of my life somewhere where The Matrix was rebooted, and I'm not familiar, where I am reliving that boat chase in an endless loop. I remember watching that movie and when people ask me, what do you think of Living, Let, Die? The whole movie is a boat chase to nowhere. It's a boat chase that just goes on and 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 and in another life, like a form of nonviolent torture let's let's go that route would be to force somebody to watch that boat chase i would say in an endless loop but it feels like it already is in an endless loop the boat chase in live and let die is like going to ikea where you keep seeing exit signs but you can't get out there's no escape from that boat chase once it starts strap in there's an hour of your life you're not going to ever get back as we speak, the Daniel Craig era of James Bond is over. His last film, No Time to Die. And um, I don't know if they've been actively seeking the new James Bond. I, a lot of these reports I don't think are accurate. If they were so desperate to make more movies, they would have settled on somebody. The fact that it's taking this long is just weird. <coughs> Excuse me. Maybe they don't know for sure what they want to do next, or with all the odds, and the odds against Henry Cavill with this, and Idris Elba, and maybe they go renegade, and Tom Hiddleston, and all these different ideas I've been reading, and many of you who are fans have been reading. Perhaps they haven't found the right person yet, and that's what the hesitation is. But I feel like this is the longest that we've gone without any idea who the next James Bond was going to be. My father always told the story of Goldfinger, and in particular, there's two, two pieces of the story. He was 21 years old when Goldfinger came in, and he was in the army. His memory is, well, there's a scene in the film where Goldfinger does some kind of nonsense, and you see men in military uniforms at a, um, on a jog, and they just kind of collapse some sort of it wasn't mind control, but it was something like that, where they got hit by some kind of wave and they, and they dropped. Now, my dad's platoon, at that time, was up for that role. My father was almost an extra in Goldfinger. They ended up choosing another one because that platoon was, uh, they had something else going on at that particular juncture. I remember, my father was worked in the finance office, but the guys that he was with, were almost available for that, and they ended up not getting it. But it was a huge deal, not surprisingly, in 1963, 64, as the case may be, uh, to even get an idea, hey, we might be in a movie. It would have been pretty funny to see my father, age 21, just fall over on command in front of a camera in a James Bond film. But his memory is that it was a huge box office hit, and it was a big deal even though that wasn't the first Bond film that came out. You know, you'd know, think they would have gone with Casino Royale, but there were, uh, as there often is in Hollywood, there were rights issues. So Casino Royale, the Daniel Craig origin story uh, was not, they, didn't, they weren't able to make it until Daniel Craig, as bizarre as that is. But um, there was Dr. No from Rush With Love and then Goldfinger. And the first two movies made money, but Goldfinger was a certified smash at the box office. And I've seen it numerous times. It's okay. I like it. I don't love it. The villain, Laura Goldfinger, it's not really that exciting. I feel like Mike Myers did a better job as gold member than, you know, it's kind of sold that. And then the idea of the kind of humorous, the the character, um, I guess it was Toru Tanaka, the the professional wrestler, was supposed to be, uh, his name was Oddjob. And obviously Mike Myers calls the same version or his version of that character, random task. Odd job, random task, great. But I've seen all of the Connery Bond films and it's weird, my favorite Connery Bond film is the non-canon unofficial renegade Bond film made the same year as Roger Moore's Canon, C-A-N-O-N, octopusy, or as Roger Moore would say it, Octopussy. Never Say Never Again, which I saw on HBO when it hit HBO and absolutely loved it. I'd already seen like three or four of the Roger Moores. I don't think that I had seen a Connery Bond. That was my first kind of experience with Connery as Bond. That was right away my favorite James Bond film. And I hadn't, not surprisingly, seen a Sean Connery film up to that point in time. I just thought he was amazing. you know, 10-year-old or whatever, his 10-year-old brain instantly calculated, okay, I like this guy better than Roger Moore. Kids in school used to make fun of the way Roger Moore spoke, that his his English, his accent was so perfect and so clipped. Roger Moore, Roger Moore, Roger Moore. I say, I love Roger Moore. Roger Moore was a scream all those years later, 1996, he did the film with Van Damme called West. It was hilarious. He was hilarious. Like the, the two actors least likely to work with one another, Roger Moore and Jean-Claude Van Damme. And then he was in the Spice Girls movie. That's a big surprise. But forgetting that, there are a grand total, and this is something I didn't know. I have a lot of random movie trivia, as you know, stored up in my head. I did not know this. I would have had to take a guess. Including the two kind of renegade, non-canon James Bond films. There are a total of 27. The two renegade, one is, as I say, Never Say Never Again, where Connery basically took back the role, but not really because Roger Moore was still making Bond films. Uh, And 1967, Casino Royale, where David Niven, the David Niven, around the world in 80 days, one of the all-time greats, the guy who had the single best moment in the history of the Oscars, David Niven. I think it was 1974 Oscars, if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong on the year, where there was all kinds of, there's always controversy. That's the thing, people say, oh, it's, it's 2023, and everyone's woke, and controversy. There's always controversy at the Oscars. There was years where different actors were promoting different causes, going back decades. So this particular year, there were rumors that there was gonna be trouble during the ceremony, and as David Niven got on stage, Some guy, a naked guy, I don't know how he got past security, but this naked guy started strutting around on the stage. And as was Kodiak Auditorium, whatever it was, is in an uproar, and David Niven was so good, he just kind of goes like this. And then, as if on cue, he goes, it's extraordinary that the biggest laugh, that man, will ever get is from stripping down and showing off his shortcomings. When I think David Niven, the first thing I think is that unbelievable Oscars moment. David Niven confronts a streaker. But David Niven technically played James Bond in Casino Royale. And here's another bit of trivia. This I didn't have to look up. Woody Allen in that movie. Woody was on his way up. He was basically just a kid. He was probably 29, 30, however old he was. He plays a character called Jimmy Bond. I never saw that version of Casino Royale. My understanding is kind of a, a satire, a spoof of James Bond films. So I, now that I'm thinking about it, I've only seen one Bond film in theaters. I should have seen Goldeneye. You know, oddly enough, I was at NYU Film School when Goldeneye came out and by the time Tomorrow Never Dies was released a few years later, I was already graduated. graduate. Um, always a fan of Pierce Brosnan. Did not like his, his interpretation of James Bond. Didn't work for really. me. Or maybe it was just that the scripts weren't that great. I thought Goldeneye was the best Bond film that he made. Alan Cumming, one of those guys, where I talk about Roger Ebert, he had this unofficial thing called the Stanton Walsh rule, where any movie featuring either the late great M. Emmett Walsh, or the late great Harry Dean Stanton, any movie with either of those guys cannot possibly be altogether bad, just by virtue of those guys being in. I would add Alan Cumming to that list, that's a guy, whatever he's in, he commands attention and he makes it worth seeing, just for when he's on screen. And him in GoldenEye, he elevates the movie just all by himself, he elevates the movie. Pierce is okay, Sean Bean, Isabella Scarabco, Alan Cumming makes that movie work. Every line reading, it's like it's just, he's just—he's having so much fun playing this sort of semi-comic, dastardly I am invincible. The only Bond movie I ever saw in theaters was Tomorrow Never Dies with uh, Pierce. That was his second film. Jonathan Price, a great actor. That's one of those people, everybody who knows who I'm talking about, everybody loves that. Movie. He was in Brazil, which was a Huge cult film from Terry Gilliam in the '80s, where another case of a studio taking the movie away from the filmmaker and doing whatever the fuck they want to it because they know better. Uh, and Michelle Yeoh, uh, a long, long time—25 years before *Everything Everywhere All at Once*. But that's it. Didn't see, and I was a Daniel Craig fan before he was cast as Bond, and then when he was cast, that was also controversial. Bond has to have dark hair, it can't be him, this is bullshit. The same kind of stuff with Star Wars. This is disgusting, they're raping my childhood. Fuck you, shut up. Watch the movies and either like them or don't like them. And Daniel Craig won a ton of people over with how strong he was in Casino Royale. And that movie was better than most people expected it to be. Um, There are still some people, there's a website Daniel Craig will never not be ever Bond, fuckdanielcraig.com, or one of those kind of goofy names. Uh, and they never really came around, but they had less and less uh, viewership, readership, membership, because come on, the guy was terrific. He was a really solid James Bond. But if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna go across, and I'm not gonna sit here and, and, and checklist the names of all of the Bond films, and certainly when you see this, Please, in the comments, drop your favorite and least favorite James Bond films because, to a lesser extent, the Harry Potter films, where you have enough movies, where if you ask 100 people what are your top three, you're gonna get a lot of different answers because that's just the way this goes. So there's so many Bond films and nobody's gonna choose the, the 60s Casino Royale. No way, I shouldn't say that. It's very unlikely that anybody is gonna choose the David Niven slash Woody Allen Casino Royale. But Some people might, if you could say, give me a top three or a bottom three, they might throw Never Say Never Again onto that list. Um, My favorite Bond film is, shockingly, The Living Daylights, 1987, where Timothy Dalton took over, for Roger Moore, whose last Bond film was A View to a Kill, which many people felt was a letdown. You know, anytime you have a movie where you have Christopher Walken playing a villain, you gotta gotta do better. You gotta do more than what they were able to do in that film. And so the franchise wanted to go in a different direction. Dalton had been up for the role many years earlier. Like, I believe he was up for the role towards the end of the first Sean Connery run, like the Diamonds Are Forever, like in that range. Timothy Dalton was uh, Royal Shakespeare Theater, I forgot if that's exactly here, but he was classically trained and he had the look. It's difficult to explain, but people familiar with the books, many have talked about, and to this day they say that in terms of the visual representation of the character, the way that James Bond is described by Ian Fleming, Timothy Dalton is is that guy. You know that that meme, you're not that guy. You're not that guy. Timothy Dalton was that guy and it's probably why they wanted to cast him when he was so young, because the producers, you know, the early version, Albert Broccoli, um, Albert and Barbara Broccoli, 50 years ago, um, they saw it. They said, it's like this actor appeared from the books. That is how much he seems like the way he's described by Ian Fleming in the novel. The story of The Living Daylights, from what I understand, was originally intended for Roger Moore. And there are a couple of set pieces which still have a little bit of a comedic angle and aspect to them, even though it's some serious shit. And then there was a scene that they shot, which is available on YouTube. It's called Magic Carpet Ride. That sounds dumb. But if you go to YouTube, um, there's a scene where Bond basically makes an escape. Uh, It's just, it doesn't really work. It's too cartoony like some of the issues with the later Pierce Brosnan movies where they were almost like it was like watching a video. But Timothy Dalton was perfectly cast. And The Living Daylights, there's a little bit of gadgetry and gimmickry thanks to um, Q, the, the great character of Q. We've seen different actors play Q over the years, just as M has been different actors and actresses. You know, Dame Judi Dench famously sparring with Pierce Brosnan's James Bond. And uh, Money Penny also, some of the great lines. You always were a cunning linguist, James. You know, he's a ladies' man, he's a cunning linguist. Get it? Yeah, yeah, I get it. Great. Right. Living Daylights is a more straightforward spy story that doesn't have to be James Bond. It, it almost has a little bit of a Mission Impossible feel to it because it's so sprawling and covers so much geography. I mean, the movie begins. Uh, The Rock of uh, Gibraltar, with a spy mission, like a, um, a phony spy mission, sort of training gig gone awry. And Bond gets himself, as usual, in over his head, where he's supposed to assassinate a sniper, but he, split second decision, realizes this isn't the sniper. There's some kind of strange plot going on here that nobody knows about, I gotta get to the bottom. And Dalton, from first frame to last, shows incredible command and understanding of the character and poise, And even as very ridiculous, crazy shit, Daniel Craig did this too, but as this unbelievable plot is playing out around him, Dalton, despite occasional smile and wisecrack, and shaken, not stirred, he takes the material seriously. Unlike Roger Moore, who would have been joking his way through terrorist incidents and attempted assassinations, and people that he cared about in jeopardy, So that film, from the first time I saw it, didn't see it in theaters, watched it on HBO, I taped it. It was one of those movies that I could always pop into the old VHS and fire it up, start watching it and enjoy So the second and unfortunately final James Bond film that Timothy Dalton did is another movie that I think is great. It's called License to Kill. And it's even darker and grittier than The Living Daylight. It's an even more um, black-souled interpretation of Ian Fleming's famous spy. Where in this instance, Bond goes rogue, he goes renegade, because his buddy, spoiler alert, you know, he's still alive in the later films, billy Slider, gets basically attacked, by a, um, kind of a cartel boss, played by a terrific actor, always a character in movies, Robert Dobbins. He was um, one of the Fratelli boys in in the Goonies several years earlier. But this was a point where it looked like Dobby was going to become a bigger star than he ended up becoming because he played really terrific supporting roles. He was in Die Hard. He was one of the Special Agent Johnson, no relation. He was that guy. And um, he's in the Goonies, and he was in Predator 2. And he's terrific in an early scene in Action Jackson with Carl Weathers, uh, whose 76th birthday is today, I should point out. But um, Dobby in License to Kill plays a brutal, ruthless, merciless drug lord. I know that's a cliche, but that's who and what he plays. A very young Nicio del Toro is really strong in this movie. And so Bond, rather than for God and country, or specifically for MI6, for country, for the queen, Felix Leiter is viciously assaulted, attacked, in a way that Bond cannot allowed to stand, but hey, you have an assignment. I expect you to be professional and carry it out, and James Bond basically gives the service, the proverbial middle finger, and goes rogue, and says, I don't give a shit. I, am, I owe it to this guy, and I'm not gonna stop until the motherfucker that did this to him and his bride pays, and that's it. So essentially, it is a revenge story, purely vengeance with Bond using all of the tactics that he has used to save the world on so many different occasions, even up to that point in the 26 or 27 plus Bond history. He uses all the tools at his disposal and he still has Q working with him to help him out kind of under the table. And the movie actually was praised at the time for the strong female characters because often the Bond girls are just kind of set decorations. And in License to Kill, the, the uh, characters played by Talisa Soto, and especially Carrie Lowell, later was married to Richard Gere, very strong, and not reactive female characters, taking the initiative. And um, it was good. It, it, was, it was well done. And as I say, Dobby is so good as this vicious crime lord. He just sells it. You know, he, he makes you believe he really is the character. Like he's not just picking up a paycheck. And being a Bond villain, You could get through just having fun and picking up a paycheck but dobby doesn't he doesn't go that route he works it and the same with dolphin you feel his rage this shit will not stand i'm going to get the mother i don't care if it costs me my career costs me my life no problem so after license to kill uh there was a gap and that's when Pierce Brosnan took over. And as a, as a fan of Timothy Dalton, the kind of rest of his career he's such a strong actor. He's great in whatever he does. You know, we've seen him in comedies or in comedic roles in movies like The Tourist with Johnny Depp and Angelina Jolie. He commands the screen. Beautician and the Beast, he's a fucking riot. That's Fran Drescher's movie. He's who you remember in the film. He's hilarious. He's playing the kind of guy, that the brutal dictator, that James Bond would have tried to remove from power. (laughs) Boris Pachenko, great name, right? (laughs) But as I say, the Brosnan movies, many of them were huge box office hits, but they strayed sort of further and further away from the novels and what Ian Fleming would have probably wanted done with his beloved franchise. But movies were hits, and Brosnan is so likable. So my issue was not with him, it was the interpretation of the character, which I just felt was too cartoony. I just didn't think that it worked. Pierce can only do what's in front of him, and I always said that his best outing as Bond was Goldeneye, which is at least a solid story, very well acted. Sean Bean, another one of those actors, Yang ain't ever gonna phone it in. He's gonna give you everything he's got, and Alan Cummings so two people, that you know that there's going to be quality just by virtue of reading the cast and saying, oh, who's in this movie? But I love Casino Royale, Daniel Craig's initial outing as Bond. I actually rank that in my top three Bond films. And I, my top three list is completely absurd. Not in any order. Casino Royale, The Living Daylights, Never Say Never Again. Totally ridiculous. that That's the Connery movie that I chose and choose. But those are my three favorites. I love Casino Royale. I love the sort of viciousness of the story. The number of times James Bond gets beaten almost to with an inch of his life or electrocuted. There doesn't seem to be a way for him to win at all, at any level of that story. And that works for me. It works. Daniel Craig sells. Absolutely sells. Um, Honestly, I really don't give a shit who, who becomes James Bond now. I mean, certainly, if somebody said, hey, what do you think about Henry Cavill, yeah, fine. He's already played Spies. The man from UNCLE, he's, he's fucking great. That's a movie that I would have liked to have seen a sequel, but unfortunately, his co-star in that was Army Hammer, whose career is completely over. But that movie, the small role that Hugh Grant plays, Hugh Grant, another actor that every single movie he is in, he just cleans up, he cleans up. He did it in Dungeons and Dragons. It's not, I mean, his character is technically one of the villains, he's hilarious. Every scene he's in, he's all you see. The Gentleman, another movie, Matthew McConaughey's movie, Hugh Grant is what you remember. Brilliant, fantastic. And a man from Uncle Henry Cavill, it's one of his best performances, playing a spy. an American spy, but a spy nevertheless. That being said, I'd love to see him get a crack at 007. He absolutely has the look, he has the build, he has the kind of lady killer you know, thing going for him. Go right ahead. But I also wouldn't have a problem if they decide to go with Idris Elba or Tom Hiddleston. In the same way that I urge people, give Daniel Craig an opportunity. He'll surprise you. No, you don't know him, he'll surprise you. So anybody who is cast, guaranteed, the family responsible for casting has gone through so many different options and have been, this is our guy. It's not something, as we can tell, given that that movie is now uh, no time to die three years old, it's not something they arrive at like. So if whoever gets that role has been put through the meat grinder, they earn it. And I would say that if given the right material, they will do a good job. You know? Now I also want to point out, before I close up the James Bond episode, that when I was at NYU, uh, one of my professors, I had him in the spring of 1995, Jesus, 29 years ago. Holy shit. Toby Miller knew more about the James Bond films than anybody. He wrote a book on it. He was also fascinated by the change of dress, clothing styles, hairstyles, mustaches. There was a lot of really cool shit that he was focused on. But he showed us a montage of the opening shots and closing shots of every Bond film from 1962 until License to Kill. Goldeneye hadn't come out yet. It came out in the fall of 95. This was the spring. But that got me more interested in the earlier James Bond films that I had missed. Some of the more movies that I said, Well, I don't really like Roger Moore, I'm not gonna watch anymore. And some of the early Conneries like Diamonds Are Forever and you Only Live. We actually watched You Only Live Twice in that class I had with him, which was called Popular Culture and Everyday Life. So with that, we've reached the end of episode 57. The james bond episode of the confessions of a not so dangerous mind podcast once again i want to thank you for joining me i hope you enjoyed the james bond episode and if there are movies that i've mentioned that you haven't seen most of them are available free on various services i know that max had a ton of them and amazon prime had a lot of them but if you're checking out episode 57 on the youtube channel and haven't done so already Don't forget to click like, subscribe, and turn on those notifications. I'll be back with episode 58 real soon. Take care, and